good to be back here. It's sort of, it's been around 12 months or so, I think, since I was last here. But it's good to be back with a lot of familiar faces. Um, and I got to say, before I start, thanks. I mean, often when you speak at another church, you know, you're lucky if you can get one of the congregation to read the passage out for you. But I didn't sort of expect a five-part little mini-series here with a dramatic representation and hand-drawn graphics. I'm like, now that that is really that's that's setting a precedent which I have not been part of at a church before. So I really appreciate it because it is a long text this morning. So it's good that you've already had your appetite wet a little bit in terms of what we're going to cover. I won't be going verse by verse because I appreciate it is a long slab of Jesus' life. But uh, what I will do is try and draw together those pretty familiar narratives to try and pick up some of the common themes about what we can learn when we live a life that's about pursuing Christ. And one thing I did learn when I was reflecting on this passage in Luke 4 and the start of Luke 5 was a principle that struck home to me and that is that when we pursue something of value, the path there is really straightforward and without its challenges. And that principle has always been hit home to me in a very real way uh, in a circumstance I found myself in that actually involved my wedding proposal. Now, I haven't actually told many people this story and my wife has told even fewer. Uh, but in the interests of openness and transparency, I, I thought I would share this with you. See, I'd sought permission from my father-in-law, which was reluctantly given, and I went out and bought the ring and the day it arrived. And so me and all my wisdom at that age, I thought, what should I do to make this a significant event for her? And I decided to take her skydiving. <laughs> yeah, good judgment. Um, so there we go and it was of course a surprise so we took a left and we expected to be taking a right and um, rocked up at the foot of a plane and off we were about to jump um, she cried and they weren't, they weren't tears of joy so I thought in panic then I thought I'd better retreat to a more serene setting so I had a picnic lunch that was set up for a beach and I thought look let's just drive to the beach I'll try and pick up the pieces here and restore a bit of order to what had just happened turned out to be a nudist beach <laughs> I thought, this is really not going well. I can't be that guy who proposed on a nudist speech. So I thought, desperately I'm trying to work around to find another place where I can propose to this woman. We go for a walk and we walk and we walk, trying to find a romantic lookout. Pretty soon she was short of breath and complaining about getting stuck in peak hour traffic on the way home. We got to a lookout, people were everywhere, so we just kept walking until I thought, I've got to find somewhere. Went to what felt like the furthest place in Victoria, and finally there was a window of opportunity and I thought if I don't take this it could get even worse. So um, I proposed and thankfully she said yes. Now what did I learn about that saga? Well when we know we're pursuing something of value rarely does it pan out the way you expect it to. Rarely is the path there straightforward. Now you'll be glad to hear and you'll know from the readings that there's no wedding proposals in today's text. There's certainly no nudist speech. But what we see is we're actually at a critical point in Jesus' life. This is the kickstart to his ministry and he's about to pursue something of immeasurable value. He's about to pursue the mission that had been set before him right from the beginning of creation. This is what his life was going to be about. It was about to launch his whole ministry now. He's been baptised by John the Baptist. He's been commissioned by the Holy Spirit. He's been endorsed by his Father in Heaven and he's ready to kickstart his ministry. But of course, right from the outset, that path that was set before Christ was not straightforward and was not without its challenges. And what we find in today's passage is the reality that challenges will confront those who follow Christ. But more than that, we don't just get a sense of the challenges that come our way, we also are reminded of the overriding purpose that we can fix on when we follow Christ. And we're also 
given an important promise that we can hold on to as we pursue him. So with that being said, let's journey through some of the narratives together as we look at the challenge, the purpose and the promise that's involved in a life that pursues Christ. So first up, there's a, familiar, there's a narrative that many of you will be familiar with. That is the temptations that happened in the wilderness. So this is the launch of Jesus' ministry and he sets out into the wilderness for 40 days. Now it's an extended period of time, uh, but what we see is the author focuses on three specific encounters that Jesus has with Satan himself or the evil one. And first of all, Satan tries to take advantage of Jesus' physical struggles. We hear in the text that Jesus was hungry. So Satan says, well, you can fix that quite easily, you're the son of God, why don't you just turn uh, some stone into bread? To which Jesus simply quotes scripture and says, it's God rather than bread that's going to sustain him. His personal struggles, he was willing to endure those because he he knew his dependence was ultimately not on what he could do for himself, but on his father in heaven. So secondly then, Satan moves away from focusing on Jesus' physical struggles and he starts to attack the plan and the purpose that God had for his life. It says that he took him to a high place, or Eureka Tower, depending on your cultural interpretation, took him to a high place, showed him all the kingdoms and he says that he offered him all authority and splendour. And he says, if you worship me, I'll give all that to you. Now that's interesting Because if you remember right back at the start, Jesus was in that position of power and authority. He was over all things. He was at God's right hand right from the beginning. He ruled all those kingdoms and, and, and authorities. They were all created and continued to exist through Jesus Christ. But God's plan for him would be that he would relinquish that position and come as a servant of man. And that he would be rejected by many and he would take a path that would ultimately lead him to giving his life on the cross as we remembered with the emblems. That was God's plan. And Satan's saying, don't worry about that plan. I'll take you right back up to where you should be. I'll take you right back up to your rightful spot. To which Jesus says, I'm going to worship God and him alone. It's God's plans for me that the only thing that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in an easier alternative and then lastly, it says that Satan seek to, he, he twisted scripture and he, and he took Jesus to uh, the temple. He, he stood in the highest point of the temple and he encouraged him to jump off, using scripture to say that because you're the son of God, all these angels will come and flock to your age so you won't be harmed. So why not give this a go? This was encouraging Jesus to use his position and his status for his own personal gain. But what was interesting is that if Jesus did this, there was also a traditional expectation amongst the Jewish people that the Messiah would come standing on the temple. And by suddenly launching himself up and, and having this miraculous display of angels swooping to his, to his aid, he was, he was potentially uh, giving effect to that traditional expectation of the Messiah, saying, here I am, it's me, behold. But God's plan was never that Jesus would announce himself as the Messiah in that way, was it? He came as a servant. The intention was that he, people would see what he said, they would see what he taught, they would see the way he lived and in those things they would believe. Remember his encounter with Thomas? Jesus had just risen from the dead and he proved that he'd risen to the dead in front of Thomas and Thomas going, okay, well, my Lord, my God. Jesus says, well, you've seen something miraculous and you've believed but blesses everyone who hasn't seen those things but yet still believe. 
Jesus was only ever interested in God's plan and purposes. He wasn't interested in any easier or um, more comfortable alternative. Now I can't help but see each of these encounters as a bit of a trial run for the cross and an attempt by Satan to pull Jesus away from that cross. See, Jesus, uh, sorry, Satan knew he couldn't overcome Jesus by power, could he? So the best that he could do was try to lure, lure Jesus away from the plan and the purpose that God had for his life. So he says, don't worry about this suffering. Don't worry about the cross. Don't worry about all this rejection. I've got a much easier alternative for you. And church, we can expect exactly the same treatment. We can expect exactly the same form of spiritual attack. Because in Luke 9.23, Jesus says, Whoever's going to be my disciple, whoever's going to pursue me, must deny himself daily, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus was on his way to the cross and he's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to take the same road. Just as Satan tried to lure Jesus away from that cross, so he will try and lure us away from the plan and purpose that God has for our life. Because we're called to the same life of self-sacrifice, we're called to the same life of dependence on him, we're called to the same life of submission, the same life of love, and the way Satan tries to attack that is to try and get us to opt for a life that's a little bit more comfortable than that, a little bit easier than that. A little bit less different than that. Just a little bit less challenging. And of course a little bit more about us and a little bit less about God. You know, We should always be asking ourselves in what way Satan might be trying to lure us away from the work that God has in store for our lives. It can be by shifting our priorities from service to comfort. It might be replacing our time with God, with time uh, with others, with work, with all sorts of other distractions. It might be by simply keeping our mouth closed rather than being willing to share it for the gospel. For the more we seek to pursue Christ, the more Satan will seek to drag us away. But what we see at the start of Jesus, at the start of chapter 4 is not just that Jesus had challenges on a spiritual level as he dealt with Satan himself, he also had challenges at a physical level as he had to deal with the rejection of people around him. See, he then returns to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is his hometown. It's, it's, he was born in Bethlehem, but his, his family was from Nazareth. That's where he would have grown up. And he's, he's invited to speak at the, at the synagogues there and they're quite impressed with what he has to say. And as we saw, the scroll was opened and he read from a passage from Isaiah, which I might read out because it it sets a tone of what we see then in the remainder of chapter 4. So Jesus is reading to the people and he's quoting scripture at them. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he calmly shuts the scroll, takes a seat and says, now that has just been fulfilled in your hearing it. Now what does he mean by that? Well this was a messianic text. This was describing what the role of the Messiah would be. That the Messiah would come and he would release the oppressed. That he would come and give freedom to those in captivity. That he would bring sight to the blind. That he would proclaim the coming of the Lord's kingdom. And now in reading that, Jesus is saying, that is speaking of me. This is my role now. And that's the role we're going to see lived out in the remainder of chapter 4. 
So how do they respond to that idea? Well, at first they're amazed. But then you can see these shadows of a doubt start to creep in their head. And they ask questions like, is this just Joseph's son? He's just from around here, isn't he? He's just from Nazareth. There's nothing particularly special about him. And Jesus then responds to those shadows of a doubt by reflecting a little bit on some of the Old Testament where he reflects on prophets like Elijah and Elisha who he says were also rejected in his hometown and the message from God that they had was actually accepted by other people. The implication he's saying is, you Nazareth are my hometown, you're not going to accept what I say to you but a whole lot of other people will and their lives will be changed. How do they respond to that? They get a little bit angry the mob mentality takes over and they take him out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus calmly walks back through the crowd and goes on his way. Now if he hadn't gotten off to a challenging start already in the direct encounters he'd had with Satan himself, now he's being challenged on a different level from the rejection of the people around him, people from his own hometown who would not accept the message and the ministry that God had given him. And church, I doubt I'm telling you anything new here when I say we're called to live that same journey. The Christian life is never intended to be an easy road. You can't look at anywhere in Jesus' ministry, you can't look at any description of it in the epistles or elsewhere in the Bible and get the impression that life following Christ down the same road when we pursue him is straightforward and always pans out exactly as we please. It just doesn't because we're under attack from the enemy in a fallen world and we will constantly face rejection from those around us who are not of God and who won't accept God and whose hearts have been hardened. Christianity and pursuing Christ is not straightforward. There will always be challenges. And so if you're anything like me, you start to ask the question, well, why on earth would I sign up for that? Where's the marketing spiel? Where's the appeal in that? And I think we see the appeal when we go continue through chapter 4 and we understand a little bit more about not just the challenges but the purpose that we have when we follow Christ and the promise that we can hold on to. So Jesus then moves from Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum and he starts to speak in the synagogues there and he's confronted by evil spirits which we heard about before One in particular that starts yelling at him and identifying who he is and and Jesus simply simply um, commands him to leave the person and he does. And it says the person's completely unharmed. Word about him then starts to spread. But he shows in the narrative there he didn't just have control over the spiritual, he had control over the physical as well. He goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's place who uh, is sick with a disease, says she has a fever. And Jesus doesn't opt for the Panadol or the aspirin. He simply leans over her and says, rebukes the fever or he tells the fever to leave. But her temperature doesn't just come down a bit. What we see is she jumps up and she starts to wait on them and fulfill the duty she would have otherwise done. This woman had obviously been completely healed. Healed the spiritual, healed the physical. And then word really started to spread. And then what we see is people start to bring all of their sick They bring all of their diseased. They bring all of the people who are similarly possessed by evil spirits. They start coming to Jesus and Jesus begins to heal them and bring restoration into their life. 
This is the opening bounce of Jesus' ministry. That's where he said, okay, enough of the rejection, the spiritual attack, I'm just going to get started here. And he starts going about the work that, Jesus, that God had set out for him right from the outset. This was the first quarter and right from the very start it sets that paints a picture of everything that his ministry was to stand for and that it is that is that it was meant to be a ministry of transformation. It was a ministry that was meant to be about taking people's lives and turning them into something completely different. It was a ministry that was meant to be about changing people so that they would never be the same again. In a word, his ministry was about seeing people's lives redeemed. What do I mean by that word redeemed? It means to be set free. To be set free from a condition or a state of captivity from which you are unable to free yourselves. See, Jesus met people in their point of need. Whether that was in the form of physical need in their disease or illness or whether it was in the form of spiritual need in their possession by evil spirits, he met them in that point of need and he set them free. This is ultimately, remember, what he foreshadowed in that passage in Isaiah, that I am the one who have come to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. I am the one who have come to release the oppressed, to set the prisoners free. Saying this ministry, I am the one who's come to redeem people. And then immediately in chapter 4, what does he start to do? He sets about that work of redeeming people's lives, of setting them free. Now, recently, um, this year, my wife and I had to spend quite a bit of time in the Monash Children's Hospital as our four-month-old had to unexpectedly had quite significant um, surgery. And I remember one night, um, it was about 2 or 3 a.m., the hours all kind of blur, and I just felt as though I had to get out and go for a walk. And I, I walked around the paediatric ward a little bit and I remember seeing um, all sorts of kids you'd, you'd hear clearly uncomfortable with their situation, uh, there's other kids that were hooked up to different machines. Uh, I remember seeing teenage girls who had been hospitalised with um, pretty serious disorders. And I remember all these parents just kind of desperately trying to get sleep at the end of their kids' beds. And I remember just being struck in that moment of how, how mortal and vulnerable and broken we are as a people and how we just don't have any hope without God. And we have these struggles, whether that's in a physical condition or disease or whether it's just in our circumstance. We're always dealing with things that, that we just can't manage ourselves. It's too big for us. And I felt like, in, in a way, that was like a little, a little snapshot to me of, of, this, of this point in chapter 4 where people are taking, taking their diseased and, their, and the people who are sick and who they can't fix their conditions of themselves, they're bringing them to Jesus and he is meeting them in their point of need and he's setting them free. He's offering life and healing and restoration into their situation. And that's ultimately the narrative that we see in Scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. See, right back in Genesis, man turned their back on God and since then we have been a people which are in captivity. Sin entered the world and fractured that relationship with God. And from that moment, God set about a plan. And that plan was about restoring that relationship, about bringing forgiveness of that sin, about, about healing us together with God again. And that meant it was only going to be achieved through his son, Jesus Christ, coming to earth as a servant of man and ultimately being crucified on a cross 
and then rising three days later to show that I have power over all things, even your sin, I've died for that. That was a ministry of redemption that was set about in Genesis and was sprinkled through the whole book until you see it graphically lived out in the Gospels and then you see the Apostles and, and the rest of the New Testament experiencing the reality of that in their own life. The, the whole word is about the redemption of God's people. And we see that lived here. And it's not just a redemption in a physical sense, it's a redemption in a spiritual sense where our sin, people are being reconnected with God and they're experiencing the healing that comes from that and they're experiencing life to the full. And that's true redemption, isn't it? A healing that's not of our bodies, but a healing that's of our hearts and of our souls. And it's that redemptive plan that was the purpose for Jesus' life right from the opening bounce. And it's the same redemptive plan that we're called to be part of today, isn't it? That's our purpose. Jesus was called to go to the cross. We're called to go to the cross. It's a different cross, but it's for the same purpose. And that's to see people's lives and hearts and souls redeemed. You know, it's interesting on this point, in verse 42 of chapter 4, we find Jesus, it describes him as being in a solitary place. And people meet him in this solitary place. And they actually don't want him to leave. They try and keep him there. They want to keep Jesus with them there in that moment, learn of him and experience him for themselves. And Jesus responds by saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, for that is why I was sent. I love that because it reminds me that this good news of redemption, this good news of the gospel and of Jesus Christ was never intended to be kept to a select group of people. It never intended to be retained in a solitary place. It was always a good news and a ministry that was intended to be shared. God's heart and mission is that this redemptive plan and purpose, this, this reality that we have in Jesus Christ, was always to be intended to be shared to all the other towns, to everyone who would listen, so they would know that there is life in Jesus, that there is hope in Jesus, that there is love, forgiveness, that there is life to the full, that there is healing, that there is an eternity and that there is redemption in Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, there is none of those things. Look there. You can't find any of it because it doesn't exist except in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to these people in this solitary place, this is a good news, but I've been sent to tell it to anyone who will listen. It's for all the other towns as well. You know, the good news of Jesus is never intended to be for these four walls alone, is it? It's for all the other towns, for anyone who would listen. And we need to be start asking ourselves, how can we better live out that redemptive plan in our life? How can we better pursue Christ so that all the other towns around us, everyone that I know, is experienced and exposed to the reality and the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ? And as we think not just about how we might be able to share that with others, whether it's through personal evangelism, whether it's through ministries, whether it's just journeying with Christ, we should also ask the question, in what ways I personally need to experience this redemption? Because we all have conditions of the heart, don't we? We all have sin or struggles which are too big for us to deal with ourselves, for which we need Jesus to meet us in that point of need and to make us new. And I love in chapter 4 that that is exactly what we see Jesus doing. And that is his promise, that was his whole purpose, was to meet us in whatever we might be struggling, whatever conditions of the heart we might have, and to change us, to forgive us, and to give us a clean start so that we might never be the same again.
But I really enjoy looking at chapter 5, the start of chapter 5 as well, because what we have then is not just challenges that we face when we pursue Christ. We don't just have an overriding purpose in being part of his redemptive plan, but we also are given a really clear promise that we can hold on to. See, in chapter 5 what we see is he's speaking to people again. He's teaching out in the water this time and at the end of that he turns to his disciples and he says, can you just go out and get some fish please? They say, well, as we've heard today, we've been trying all night, didn't have a lot of luck, so luck's probably not the right word, didn't have much success, Uh, but look, if you want us to do it, then I'll go again. And they put out their nets and it says they catch so many fish, their boats begin to sink. And the, the, the disciples are amazed by this. And, and Simon Peter's response is he actually gets down on his knees before Jesus and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus responds to him in a really important way. He says two things. Firstly, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid of your sinfulness. Don't worry about your shortcomings. Don't worry about your inadequacies. I'm not, I know about them and I'm not interested in them. I'm going to die for those things. Don't be afraid. And then he says, from now on you're going to catch men. You'll be fishers of men. In other words, just like all these fish have been drawn into your nets, so from this point forward your lives will be filled with people who are drawn into the life-changing and redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what's important to note here though is the language that's used. First thing to note is that it's not a, there's no conditions attached. It doesn't say if you do certain things or if you live a perfect life or if you attend a small group each, each week or if you are, are, are regular in attendance on Sunday morning, then you'll be a fisher of men. There's no conditions attached to that statement at all. It's an unconditional statement. But it's not just not a condition, it's not a command. It doesn't say be fishers of men as if we should somehow figure out how we should do it in our own strength or or unpack it ourselves. There's no condition here, there's no command, it's a promise. You will be fishers of men. You will catch fish. It's a statement of absolute certainty. Now how can Jesus make that statement of certainty? He can make it because he's ultimately going to do the work, isn't he? He's ultimately going to bring in the people. He's ultimately going to soften people's hearts and change them. He's ultimately going to bring grace into their lives that will redeem them and change them into something new. And he's the one who's going to equip his disciples and provide them with the words through the Holy Spirit. He's going to do all this stuff. So he can say without a shadow of a doubt to Peter, from this point on, you will be a fisher of men. He knows it. And it's the same promise that's made to us. But what's interesting now is the way they respond in that they leave everything behind and they follow him. Everything of material value, everything that was significant to them, they submitted it all to him and they followed. They pursued. They went after Jesus. The principle here is clear, isn't it? And it's hugely significant. That when we are willing to leave everything behind, everything when we are willing to submit everything to him and pursue him, then the promise in return is you will be a fisher of men. I will add the increase. I will use you for my kingdom work. Now Jesus made the same promise later to the same person when he said, I will build my church. Church. It's another promise, isn't it? Same thing. I'm going to do this. 
Trust me. It's going to happen when you leave everything behind and you follow me. Praise God that when it comes to sharing God's redemptive plan, it's all about his grace rather than our strength. It is always about what he does and not what we do. It is his work. He adds the increase. He brings the people to hear. He provides us with the words to, to, to speak. He provides us with the people willing to listen. He will build his church. You know, today's culture will tell you that if you, you can do anything. You know, today's culture will say if you think hard enough, if you invest well enough, if you use your money smart enough, if you study long enough, if you go without enough sleep, then you'll be able to achieve anything. The world is your oyster. Yeah, but the reality of the gospel is the, is the reverse. It says when we try and do anything of eternal value in our own strength, our nets come back empty. But when we place our faith and trust in him and we say, God, I can't do this, but you can, and I'll surrender it to you, all of a sudden the nets come back full. You will be a fisher of men. Now, today's passage gives us a lot to think about. It first reminds us of the challenge of pursuing Christ, that there will be spiritual and physical opposition from the enemy and from those around us who are not willing to accept the truth of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. But it then refocuses us, says, don't be disheartened by those challenges, remain fixed on the purpose that overrides those challenges, the purpose that we're part of a bigger and more important and more significant redemptive plan of seeing people's lives and hearts changed for all eternity in a way that only Christ can do. But it doesn't just give us a purpose, it then gives us a promise to hold on to. As Jesus says, when you leave everything and submit it to me in the name of this purpose, then I will add the increase. I will do the work. I will build my church. Our role is therefore not to get put off by the challenges, but to remain fixed on the purpose and to hold on to that promise. For God will build his church. Amen? He will. His kingdom will be established. As we learn in communion, his time will come. This redemptive plan will reach fulfilment. God's glorious plan will reach fulfilment. And even though the road there may not be straightforward, what we see is that his kingdom and his plans and his purposes ultimately are the only thing that's worth pursuing. Now, I might just, I'll close in prayer, if that's right, and I'll, I'll hand it back over to the team. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminders that are in there about the fact that life, when we, when we seek to follow you, may not always be straightforward. It may not always pan out the way we expect, Lord. It will be filled with challenges, but we thank you, Lord, that we can remain fixed on and know that we are part of an eternal purpose that is ultimately the only thing that's worth pursuing. Lord, we thank you that your redemptive plan is something that changes our lives personally as we seek to place our faith in you, but it's also something that can change the lives of everyone around us. Lord, so we pray for boldness as we seek to share that message with whoever would listen, that they might know that our God saves. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that in sharing that message we can hold on to the fact that, that you will build your church, that you will make us fishers of men, that you will use us despite our inadequacies nor that you are bigger than those. And you say to us, don't be afraid of those things. Trust me and I'll do the work. Lord, we thank you for that promise 
and for that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.